Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning is from the first chapter of St. Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before I get started this morning, I want to lift up someone who's celebrating a very happy birthday. Ted Goins Sr. is celebrating his 90th birthday today, and so we want to extend our very best to, to him, Pastor Ted Goins Sr., uh, such an important uh, um, pastor in the life of this synod and of, of our church. So we are, we are blessed by him. Raise your hand if you put up a Christmas tree this past week or the week before or maybe in September because you're just so ready for Christmas, yeah? <laughs> That's good. I think a lot of people have been doing just that, preparing in some way for Christmas, just ready to finally for it to get here because we know it's also maybe the end of 2020. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, which is why we light a second Advent candle. Uh, for years and years, and for some this might seem rather odd, but I think it's significant, the church has told the story of John the Baptist on this second Sunday of Advent. It's odd, really, if you think about it, that we're so close to singing Silent Night for at least at some point in the past, little boys and girls dressing up as shepherds and angels and wise men, and, and yet today we're telling this story, the story of John who wasn't even at the manger, and he, he certainly didn't wear shepherd's clothes or the crown of a king, just seems unusual. I mean, here's a guy who shows up wearing camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, sort of like, I don't know, the ugly, itchy Christmas sweater that Rob wears at our office parties on Christmas. It's sort of awkward, right? I mean, sort of like Michael Scott from The Office, anytime he shows up in a scene, it's just awkward, right? Well, John, this about to show up, and it's just sort of awkward like that. And for it to be told the day that we unveil this gorgeous, beautiful chrismon tree, and wreaths are hung in your homes and, and around the city and around this church when we're putting lights in our windows, it just seems out of place. But it's also, if you give it a chance, it's also a very in, incredibly useful and helpful story for us. For it's one of those stories that maybe better prepares us for Christmas than any other. Here's what I mean. There are two parts to this particular story that I find uh, particularly interesting. The first is that John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. The second is simply asking the question, why did people actually go to see him? Let's talk about the first one first, John the forerunner. Have you ever noticed um, that significant people in history um, almost always are preceded by someone who paves the way for their arrival, like Sarah Evans, 
Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Sarah Evans. Most people haven't, even though she grew up fairly close to us. Interesting. Now, maybe this will play some context around her story. Last Wednesday was the 65th anniversary of a monumental event in U.S. history. It's when Rosa Parks was riding the public bus home from um, work in Montgomery, Alabama, and you know the rest of that story, right? A white man came on board and insisted that she give up her seat. She refused. She was promptly arrested. Uh, Thus began the Montgomery bus uh, boycott of 1955, a boycott that lasted for 381 days, a long, long time. Rosa Parks is credited for being the forerunner to what became the civil rights movement, and the leader of that movement and the leader of that bus boycott was a 26-year-old man named Martin Luther King. She was therefore a, a forerunner to his rise to national prominence. But did you know that Rosa Parks had her own forerunner? That's 21-year-old Sarah Evans. You see, three years before Rosa Parks took her seat on that bus, Sarah, who was from Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, continues to live there to this day. She was a private in the military. She was on her way home from her first military assignment. She sat in the only seat available on the bus that day in, in Roanoke Rapids. It was, it was a seat near the front, and she was promptly told to move to the back of the bus, but she refused and was taken to jail immediately and detained for 13 hours. She sued, and she won her case six years later, and the judge insisted that the case be, um, be removed from public records until just recently, which is why you've never heard of Sarah Evans. Even though her history was unknown to the rest of us, Black leaders in Montgomery, Alabama, knew it well, and they began months of planning for their own bus movement, the beginning of this civil rights movement. Before that movement, before Rosa Parks became a household name, there was Sarah Evans, who prepared the way for one of the most pivotal events in our, in our time. She was a forerunner, just as John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. Forerunners as it turns out, they're oftentimes the ones who are unseen. Their stories are often untold. They are the unsung heroes. Their backstories are usually unknown to us. The details of their lives, they are, they're, they're, well, I guess you'd just say undervalued or maybe underdeveloped. They get minimal attention because they're the forerunners. They're not the lead actors in the play. They're, they're, they're not the main draw to the event. They are the ones who plow the ground. They're the ones who destabilize the terrain. They are the ones who get the place ready for what is to come. They are not the one. They're the ones preparing for the one, right? Uh, here's the point. Every movement needs a forerunner. The advance team, the one who prepares the way for what is to come, like Jan Hus was a forerunner to Martin Luther, like Joseph Swan was a forerunner to Thomas Edison, like, and I found this interesting, didn't know this until this past week, Mary Gates, who had a son, who had a five-year-old computer business that was sort of fledgling until his mom, Mary, um, introduced him, connected him to a man that she knew who was on the board of the local United Way, and her son, Bill Gates, essentially was born Behind every significant person, every hero, every monumental figure is someone who prepares the way, just as John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. So if nothing else today, on this second Sunday of Advent, I would invite all of us, may, may we see the value of those who paved the way. 
let's celebrate the contributions of those who made ways for us in our own lives, certainly in, a, in our community's life or history or our community story or our, or our country's story, those who, who made ways for us when there seemed to be no way. And may we, like, do the same. May we dare to prepare the way, as Mark tells us, to prepare the way for Jesus. Or as St. Francis says more specifically, where there is hatred, may we dare to pave the way with love. Where there is discord, may we pave the way with understanding. Where there is evil, may we pave the way with good. Where there is unforgiveness, you forgive. Where there is bitterness or hostility or cynicism, as there is way too much of these days, you, me, us, let us bear the good news by paving the way with grace and with peace. That, after all, seems to me, is the best way to prepare for Christmas, don't you think? I mean, to join a movement that is willing and able to change this world for good. The second thing that's interesting about this story of John the Baptist, seems to me, is why so many people came to, to hear him in the first place. Let me read for you the, uh, the, the first few sentences again, verses from this story. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people, and and this is interesting, people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, this is the way John begin, I mean, Mark begins his gospel. You notice that Mark does not begin with mangers, with stables, with shepherds, with wise men. None of that story of Jesus' birth. John begins his gospel here, and the first person in Mark's gospel is John the Baptist. Interesting, right? So, um, someone else does the same, uh, the gospel writer John. And John provides a little bit more detail to this story when he's telling the story of John the Baptist. He says that that, that wilderness area is near Jericho. Very interesting. Just bear with me for a moment. Uh, Jericho is, or at least that wilderness area around Jericho, is 18 miles from Jerusalem. It's 25 miles from the Judean countryside where people had come from. And it's 70 miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now, when you're on traveling on foot, that's a long way to go. If you're by car, no big deal. But the, no, none of these folks, as far as I know, were in a, in a car that day, which means you've got to do some serious planning in order to make a trip like that. You're going to be gone for days at a time. You've got to figure out what food, how you're going to eat, where you're going to stay at night because there aren't any hotels in the, in the wilderness, so where are you going to sleep? It's, it, it's in the middle of nowhere, this, this place, which means that nobody just sort of accidentally showed up to hear John preach, they were there on purpose. Why? Because they were thirsty. You see, lots of stuff going on in their lives at this point in history. The Roman Empire was coming down hard on the Jews. Life was not easy. They didn't control their own destiny. They were incredibly desperate for God to send a Messiah, and they prayed for it every time they gathered for worship in the synagogue. They needed God. They begged for God to come and to save them. But they were beginning to feel forgotten that God had abandoned them or that God was maybe even angry at them. You see, it had been 500 years 
since the last prophet had spoken to the people of Israel, a prophet named Malachi. Now, we know that in, that Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, but Malachi is also the last prophet that the people of Israel had heard from. It had been 500 years since Malachi was on the scene. And when he prophesied, he spoke about the coming of the Messiah a day and a time. He said that no one will know except for this clue. Malachi said that you will know that the Messiah is near when the prophet Elijah reappears. Elijah would pave the way. He would be the Messiah's forerunner. Now, Elijah was a major prophet to the people of Israel, uh, whose story was told over and over and over again. Everybody loved Messiah. They, I mean, uh, Elijah. They, everybody knew Elijah. He lived 800 years before Christ. He was a prophet of the wilderness. He was a miracle worker and a preacher who boldly prophesied against the empire, against King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, by defeating the gods of Baal and boldly uh, um, showing the sheer power of God. He was the new Rockne of, of the prophets. He was the Vince Lombardi of Israel. Everybody loved Elijah. Jewish boys had to memorize the books of the Bible that told his story, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Why? For a very obvious reason. So that Israel would be prepared when Elijah reappeared. They weren't about to miss it. They couldn't afford to miss it. So they wanted to make sure they were aware when Elijah showed up to pave the way for the Messiah to come. So here's the thing, and why I've spent so much time on this very small little bit of the story. The very odd thing about this story is that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness near the village of Tishbe, which is where Elijah was born. John the Baptist confronted the empire, just as Elijah had done, this time King Herod Antipas and his wife, Salome. And and this is interesting too. John the Baptist wore what? What did he wear? Camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, which interestingly enough, in the book of 2 Kings, that's precisely what we're told Elijah wore whenever he was prophesying. Is it possible? Is it possible, they thought, just possible that this prophet in the wilderness, this man named John, is it possible that he might be the prophet Elijah? People from throughout Jerusalem and the Judean wilderness came to see. They had been waiting for so long. They had been longing for so long. They were thirsty, and they just knew that their thirst was just about to be quenched. I know that you are thirsty too. We all are. We're thirsty for something more than this, for something that will quench our dry and parched souls. We're thirsty for a new year. We're thirsty for a new start. We're thirsty for a new beginning. So very thirsty for a vaccine, my goodness gracious, that will bring everything back to, dare I say, normal, which of course nothing will ever return to whatever normal was, but maybe will bring us to a place of normalcy, maybe. It's been such a long time. We're, we're tired of sickness and death and precautions. We're, we're tired of kids staying home from school and from church. We're tired of standing six feet away from each other because we're thirsty for hugs and touch 
We're thirsty for smiles and warmth. We're thirsty for civility and for hope. We're thirsty for hope, aren't we? We want to be filled with hope again, hope for tomorrow, hope for the future, hope for what is to come. Well, friends, that's the message that John brings to us today. That's the message of John the Baptist, is that you have every reason in the world to be hopeful. It's true. For the Savior comes at last, not just in not just at Christmas in a manger, a half a world away. He comes at last into our hearts this very day, whispering a message of love, sharing with you a, a beautiful gift of grace. He comes to us when we join together as a community of faith like we do now in person or virtually. He, he comes into places that are desperate to be filled with joy. He, he sits with the weak. He challenges the strong. He holds the hand of the man dying from COVID, and he warms the heart of the widow who has been alone for far too long. She and we have every reason to hope why? Because God is not done yet. God's work, it's not done yet. The impact of Jesus' work continues, and it continues through us. As we are drawn further and further into this story of Christmas, as you and I show up to be the shepherds in this grand drama, as we show up to be the magi who come from all the ends of the earth to, to bring our gifts of praise and thanksgiving to this newborn king, it, this, this story of Christ as it bears witness in our own hearts and our own minds, as we become the light of that bright star that shines for all to see. Friends, that's what gives this world hope. And that is good news. So awake. Awake. And greet this new morn. Behold, the child of our longing has come. Amen. Amen.